Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Fritz Streif. And I'm Karam Somali. This is our 10th episode about the first ever criminal trial against Syrian officials for crimes against humanity. How strange to think one day we might be making our 100th episode, because at this pace, with a case this big, that's actually not a far-fetched idea. Will we be tired of covering this trial every week? Will you be tired of listening? For Syrians and those who follow Syria, this case in Koblenz is just a tiny fragment of a much bigger story. It's important to remember that the uprising started in 2011, which means uh, Syria has been at war for almost a decade now. And following the uprising, citizens of Syria were subject to a harsh government crackdown and arbitrary detention in places like Branch 251. The armed opposition started battling the Syrian army, and uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS found their way into the conflict. Russia sent in its air force to back the Syrian government, and meanwhile, millions of Syrians were internally displaced, and hundreds of thousands made the dangerous journey to Europe. An international coalition fought and defeated ISIS, and Turkey invaded Kurdish border towns. And all the while, peace talks have been going on one after another. I remember when the Arab Spring started in 2010, I was in law school, and then the beginning of the Syrian uprising, it feels like a long, long time ago. And it's been a lot for everyone, including global citizens who are concerned about Syria, from the average news consumer to diplomats and aid workers. There is this constant stream of news. It's never waning, and it's becoming increasingly challenging to stay engaged. And to dissect this, I spoke last week with Elizabeth Churkov. She's a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a longtime Syria researcher. In her work, she talks to everyone, from fighters and civilians to governments and journalists. Towards the end of the episode, we'll be checking in with our court reporter, Hannah El-Hitami, for an update on the trial straight from Koblenz. But before we hear from Elizabeth and Hannah, I want to share with you an example or maybe a sample of the struggle of Syrians. I have spoken to so many Syrians over the years, and every time they tell their stories, no matter how old, they tell it with the same passion, the same sorrowful details, as if it just happened the night before. And I ask myself, aren't they worn out? What keeps them going? They have always been loud about their tragic accounts, but not much has been done to to change their reality. So why even bother? And for this example, I want to introduce you to Wafa Mustafa. The chapters of her story overlap often with those of thousands of other Syrians, revolving around the common theme of detention and then having to live with the uncertain fate of their loved ones. A life reduced to waiting and hoping, but also fighting, staying loud. Wafa is 30 years old now, and just graduated from Bard College in Berlin. She majored in arts and aesthetics. In 2011, when the uprising started, she was 21. And between then and now, a lot happened. Her father was detained for one month in 2011 and then released. She was detained for peacefully protesting and then released after a few days. And then two years later, her father disappeared. Actually, the day we recorded this episode marked his seventh year in detention. 
She doesn't know his whereabouts. She doesn't even know if he's alive. My dad was first arrested um, in um, August 2011. He was accused of aiding um, terrorists. And those terrorists were actually people who fled from Hama after the regime attacked Hama, you remember, in Ramadan uh, 2011. And he's, like, he, he was kept there for like a month. And then, but at least at that moment, we knew that he was there. We knew the accusations. We knew that um, his health situation is fine. But uh, on the 2nd of July 2013, my dad was in our home in Damascus. So he had like, he didn't see my mom for a while and stuff. She made like um, the food he likes and stuff. She called him and he didn't respond and that was it. Um, and well, the only thing we knew, the only thing we know till this moment is an info we got from the neighbor who just told my mom that she saw a group of armed men breaking in and um, she heard like noises and stuff. And then, um, they went downstairs with him. And, yeah, that was the last thing we heard from him. Do you know what was the direct reason for his detention? I mean, I don't even know if he's still alive or not, so I definitely don't know. I mean, my dad was participated in different, uh, like, activities and different form and formats of, uh, of the revolution. But I definitely have no idea. Her father told the family to leave the country in case he would disappear. He thought they would be safer somewhere else. And so that's what Wafa, her mom, and her siblings did. With no passports, money, or a plan, and with only the help of a connection, they arrived in Turkey in 2013, one week after her father's arrest. How, how has your life been affected? Definitely on, on a psycho- psychological level, it, it is very hard. And I've suffered from depression, like severe depression. And I was on medicine and I just probably maybe gave up for, I don't know, for some time. I just couldn't. It was, it was more than, it was more than, it was more difficult than anything I could imagine. Um, Even physically, I mean, I was, you know, my health situation was very bad for, for a while. And, um, yeah, but these are the most obvious aspects, but, um, mentally, emotionally, it's still very difficult for me to, to talk about it. So my dad's absence, um, make made and still make me at the same time this um this very responsible adult um supporting my family um still trying to do activism still believing in the evolution um fleeing from one country to another working studying all at the same time but it is on the other hand makes me this six-year-old child who by the end of the day and before I go to sleep, I cannot think of anything except the fact that my dad is not here and I want him back. Um, I don't, 
I you cannot convince a child that for a good cause, for a bad cause, this dictatorship. I just you know what I mean. It's just you just you can ju- the only thing you can do with such a child is just to give them their dad's back. Wafa wanted to stay active, so she worked as a journalist and eventually in a media campaign against ISIS. But not long after she joined, a colleague of hers was found slaughtered in his apartment, and it became clear to her that her life was in danger. So she relocated to Germany, and that marked yet another beginning of her journey. In Berlin, thousands of other Syrians, just like Wafa, left their loved ones behind. Knowing that she was not alone helped her continue her fight for the release of her father. Do you recall your favorite memory of him? Yeah, I mean this this one discussion we had all the time when when because my dad loves I mean as all dads he loved uh, Uncle Thum. And I just hated her. I just didn't like her. I I was like every and I would never give up. Like every time we listened to her, I would be like, but but like her voice is not even beautiful. Like what? It doesn't make any sense to me. And every time he had the, this discussion with me, and it was exhausting. At some point, my mom was like, "You shouldn't just respond to her. Like it's enough." But he always like he wasn't trying to convince me, but. We would like reach out a point in the discussion where he would say, "You will, um, you will grow up, and then you would realize why I like her, why I like her." And do you like her songs now? To be honest, I cannot decide if I like them because I like them objectively, or because now that my dad is not here, and it it, I mean, the minute I remember when I first came to Germany, um, I went to some like um, I don't know, like a, a place. I went out with my friends and. Um, they were playing like a song by Uncle Thum, and that was one of the like. It was it was a very difficult moment. I just couldn't um, keep it together. In August 2013, a number of photos were leaked by a military defector, codenamed Caesar. For many, this meant they could actually try and find the people whose fate was unknown all these years. Find them in the photos. But they are not just regular photos. They were taken inside torture prisons. Anyone scanning them for familiar faces could potentially be confronted with images that would haunt them for the rest of their life. I asked Wafa if she looked at the Caesar files. I definitely didn't. I definitely, not me, not my mom, not my sisters. We couldn't. Um, I saw like photos of people I knew and... It was more than I could, I could take, and uh, I just I thought that to be honest, I literally thought that people were looking at photos. If someone would recognize my dad, they would let me know. But I don't want to look at them myself, so we didn't. You recognize photos of your friends? I mean, yeah, of course. How many? I mean, um, three, four, I guess. But I mean, the most. Um, like the closest was someone with um, Ayham um, Ghazul, the doctor. Ayham Ghazul was a 26-year-old student at the Faculty of Dental Medicine. He was beaten up and arrested and died shortly after in detention in 2012. I interviewed his mother here in Berlin, and 
it was one of the saddest interviews I have ever done. Wafa continues to dedicate most of her time to spreading awareness about the dire situation of detainees and actively demanding their immediate release. While recording this episode, Wafa is in Koblenz again, and this time with Ayham Ghazul's mother, doing all they can do, trying to be heard. Is the Koblenz trial the closest thing to victory? Uh, the only thing that um, I, I, um, I feel towards this trial is that it is very important. It is, to be honest, maybe a first step towards justice and accountability, but this doesn't mean that this is justice. This doesn't mean that justice is now served and shall all Syrians be happy. This is definitely not true. And this is very important. But at the same time, we can we can realize that this is important, obviously, on many levels. Uh, but justice is something, seems at least at the moment, very far and very distant. And it is a huge it's it's I guess it it is a hugely exhausting and difficult process and um, I might also as I always say I might myself not witness I don't know I, I I cannot even like conceptualize the moment where justice will be served I mean with all the loss with all the 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 I don't know the people we lost with all what people lost like their homes their memories their families i don't know if there will be a moment of justice for all syrians but uh, i know that uh this is the first step and this is at least to me this is important and this is satisfying enough it's really unbelievable that for syrians and many others across the world this suffering is a day-to-day reality Stories about people like Wafa, who have endured so much and keep fighting, seem almost like fictional tales. But the truth is that these stories of suffering are endless among Syrians. Yes, and that's why in my conversation with Elizabeth, I started by telling her about Wafa and her father and her activism and asked her, who is still listening? There are many people who are still listening and care and follow developments in Syria and want to see justice done. Um, And for, you know, people who are detained and still alive to be released from prisons and for families to be notified in cases where their loved ones uh, have been uh, killed in detention. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, people around the world generally follow their own lives and developments in their own countries if they even consume news. And in recent years, we've had so many upheavals. Um, people are worried about coronavirus, about uh, Brexit in the UK, about systemic racism in the US, and the shenanigans and stupidity of President Trump. So therefore, I would say that there is less international attention to what is happening in Syria now compared to the first years uh, of the conflict. But this does not mean that people don't care about what is happening in Syria. It's just that they're often fatigued from following what is happening. Uh, the conflict has gotten so much more complicated when the first, when the revolution started, it was so simple. It was you know, peaceful protesters versus a brutal regime. Then things got so much more complicated. So it became more difficult to understand what is happening uh, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Um, and, and therefore, I think that there is less attention now 
uh, unfortunately, to what is happening uh, in Syria. Elizabeth, can you describe to me the manner with which the media has been covering Syria? There is attention that is being paid uh, to Syria uh, that is greater compared to other conflicts. Yet at the same time, we've gradually seen you know, less and less attention. Uh, for me personally, uh, you know, I write for multiple outlets uh, and basically the interest in Syria only spikes and editors turn to me and ask uh, for me to write articles when there is some major development in Syria. So, for example, there was an offensive on Idlib, over one million people fled. Suddenly, when this number hit one million, suddenly uh, there was a great deal of interest of, of editors uh, asking me to, to write. When it was just, you know, 200,000 and people are sleeping out in fields and children are literally uh, freezing to death because all of this was happening in the winter, there wasn't that much attention. It was, oh, just another offensive in Idlib. Um, you know, right now in Syria, there is no active combat really that is happening. I mean, there's only kind of low scale insurgency that is happening. And, um, it, but on the other hand, there are major kind of humanitarian developments, as I mentioned, the issue of the uh, large-scale hunger that the population is facing. And this is not receiving as much attention because it's not a bomb that is dropping. It's just people who are sitting at home in the dark because there's no electricity uh, and uh, they don't have food uh, to feed their children. I know for journalists who care deeply about covering Syria, who struggle to get editors to, to decide to, yes, we're going to go for the story because they are aware of the, of the fatigue, of the fact that people are clicking less, reading less, paying less attention. So it's definitely something that is, um, that we are in constant battle against. Uh, people who research Syria, people who care about Syria and, and, and the well-being of Syrians to, to get people to pay attention. Can you describe to our listeners the current ongoing efforts, Western efforts, uh, when it comes to uh, the release of detainees? So there are basically two main ways. Um, the UN Special Envoy, Geir Pedersen, has raised the issue repeatedly, the issue of political prisoners, as opposed to um, the Special Envoy before him, uh, Stefan de Mistura, who really did not make this into a major uh, kind of cornerstone of his uh, diplomatic efforts. So he has raised the issue. Of course, the regime has absolutely no reason to uh, uh, abide by these requests, uh, even if made politely. And then the the other uh, the other aspect is the, are, are the sanctions, including the Caesar Caesar Act, uh, which we know is uh, named after the factor who leaked uh, photos of uh, over eight thousand detainees who've been tortured to death in in Damascus. Uh, up until 2013. So of course there are additional people who've been uh, tortured uh, to death since then um, and in areas beyond Damascus. Um, so the, the US, uh, one of the uh, conditions for uh, lifting of the Caesar Act, of the lifting of the sanctions, is uh, the release of political detainees, uh, allowing uh, uh, human rights organizations, international organizations to go into prisons to check, check on conditions. What's your assessment of the international humanitarian effort for uh, the relief of Syria? The needs of the population are growing at a much, much, much faster pace than what the international community is offering. So as a result, we're seeing living conditions, uh, education, uh, services, all of this deteriorating over time. Uh, we now have, uh, for example, in Idlib, a large scale food insecurity and malnutrition. 
This is not something that was as much of an issue in previous years. So the situation on the ground is deteriorating. And this is something that um, will likely continue happening, uh, particularly as now Syria is entering a very dangerous phase of in increasing food insecurity due to the rising prices uh, related to the collapse in the Syrian lira. It is quite likely that Syria will witness a famine in the, in the coming months. And I don't think that the uh, humanitarian actors are flexible enough to be able to quickly address those uh, exponentially growing needs. Are we desensitized in a way after seeing thousands of photos of, of uh, dead bodies, uh, uh, the Caesar photos, uh, videos of executions, videos of bombing, videos of pulling kids from beneath rubble? Is it so familiarized that we are now desensitized in a way? For people who follow Syria closely, yes, we are desensitized. Um, I can look at an image of a mutilated corpse and just click through it because I've seen so many of them. At the same time, people who are the average news consumers, I wouldn't say that they are desensitized because, first of all, they're spared much of the horror because, you know, uh, TV stations in the West uh, don't showcase really gory images. Uh, same with newspapers. Um, so therefore, in, in, I, I know that, for example, when I gave lectures to publics in, in different countries, and I would use images that I thought were very mild, you know, for example, the aftermath of an air of an airstrike, or you know, a massacre. But I, I would never use images of, you know, like decapitated bodies or something that I considered very gory, and people would be really, really horrified. So it made me realize that for people who track Syria closely, all of us have become desensitized. Elizabeth, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? I think that you know, reflecting back, uh, Syria will be remembered as one of the worst atrocities uh, in the 21st century. Um, the horrors that we've seen in Syria, uh, fortunately, have not been repeated in that many conflict. The extermination of people in prisons, the chemical weapons use, the mass population transfers, the massive displacement. And I think for for us, people who follow it closely, people who care about it, we will be able at least to look back and say that when this was happening, we were warning about it, we were writing about it, we were paying attention to it, even as many others uh, chose to look away. This, is not, this does not give us much consolation. The situation in Syria is catastrophic. But at least, you know, we can find some comfort in, in knowing that, that we did our best, that we bore witness, even it, as it was painful to keep paying attention, we stayed engaged. Um, so I think this, this is something that allows me to sleep at night. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. There are three things that I found especially interesting that Elizabeth mentions when Karam discussed the concept of Syria fatigue with her. The issue of humanitarian aid, the challenges for the media in covering the increasingly complicated situation in Syria, and the issue of political prisoners and detainees. She says the international community might not be able to address the pretty dire needs of the Syrian population fast enough to prevent a humanitarian disaster like famine, that the humanitarian response is not flexible enough. 
Interestingly, a number of states and international actors pledged 6.9 billion euros just a few days ago during the Brussels conference. We'll include more on this Brussels conference in the show notes. So despite Elizabeth's concerns about humanitarian aid and how it is put to work, it does continue to flow. The international community does not seem to be fatigued, at least not in terms of numbers, 6.9 billion euros. The question, of course, remains, will it be used in a flexible way that Elizabeth says it's needed? Meanwhile, according to Elizabeth, there is definitely serious fatigue among news consumers and outlets. And so I want to revisit this point she makes about how the media deals with this increasingly, quote unquote, fatigued audience. And I'm interested to hear from you, Karam. You yourself started covering this story for international media right after you left Syria in 2012. What do you think about the media attention to Syria these days? Are people still paying attention to what's going on? I think the interest is still there. Uh, but at this point, the story is too familiar. Uh, from an outsider's perspective, uh, not much has changed in Syria. and You can't just keep reporting the same story, you know. At the end of the day, uh, journalism is still an industry and international publications need entertaining stories that get people to click and subscribe. Uh, I can give you an example. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned a likely famine in Syria, but uh, it is not enough of a story, you know, at least uh, not yet, because you can't just go and film hunger. And then Elizabeth points out the issue of political prisoners. That, for example, the previous UN special envoy to Syria, Stefan de Mistura, didn't prioritize this file concerning detainees like Wafa's father. De Mistura was the special envoy to Syria for almost five years. That is five years of marginalizing one of the biggest tragedies in Syria. I would really like to ask him why he did not make a bigger point of this in the diplomatic efforts towards the regime. Perhaps... If there had been less serious fatigue and more media attention, more pressure on him and other diplomatic actors, would he and others have prioritized this more? And detainees like Wafa's father may have been released? We don't have answers to these questions either. Uh, the, the topic of Syria fatigue, does it exist? And if so, what is it exactly? It's a complex one and there is much more to, to, to it than what we discussed today. We haven't even touched on the military dimension of the Syria fatigue. Exactly. And just as an example, how is it possible that the Assad regime has been able to continue its terrible campaign to use chemical weapons against its own people? How has the world let that happen? If there had been less Syria fatigue, would that have made things turn out different? Discussing the military angle could be an entire separate podcast, to be honest. There is so much to say and discuss. Uh, we will dedicate an episode to this topic in the future. And just now, while we were finishing the recording, we introduced the topic of this week's episode with a tweet just an hour ago, and we've already gotten some really interesting reactions. We want to continue the discussion with you guys, so please do respond on Twitter or send us direct messages. This brings us to this week's court report. Let's check in with Hannah El-Hitami, who attended this week's sessions. This is what she told us. So yesterday's witness actually told some really gruesome details about his time at uh, Khatib branch. He said that he was piled into the cell with like so many other people that uh, people were like lying on top of each other. You sometimes didn't know who was dead and who was alive. Um, the problem, I think, with his testimony was the court seemed to have doubts in his um And some of the ex very extreme details he, he mentioned, it did sometimes seem 
that he was exaggerating. Uh, like he said that he was, there were more than 400 people in a 25 square meter cell, or he said that he saw 500,000 dead bodies, not in prison, but during his time in Syria. Today's witness, he was uh, working for the branch for quite a while. And he could definitely confirm that he saw Anwar R there. He could confirm what, what the position of Anwar R was. Um, however, he did say that Anwar R was one of the few who were nice to the low ranking, um, soldiers as himself. Uh, but that he didn't know what that meant, you know, what that said about his personality. He might as well have been very different towards the prisoners. Well, he also definitely contradicted some of the things that yesterday's witness said. Um, yesterday's witness said that on the way to the interrogation offices, he saw dead bodies left and right, like everywhere. Everything was full of blood. And today's witness said um, that he only saw a dead person at the branch once. But he did confirm that there was lots of torture and Lots of beating um, in the courtyard when, when the prisoners arrived. And he also confirmed that there were little tiny windows uh, from the prison uh, cells that led to the courtyard. And when you were walking there as an employee, you could often hear the screams of the people in in the cells in the prison, which was underground. That was actually why this witness, today's witness, um, decided to desert at some point because he um, didn't want to work in these circumstances any longer. These two weeks were very interesting because for the first time we heard witnesses who had themselves worked at Branch 251 and it was uh, very clear that both were very worried. Last week's uh, witness was worried because his uh, family in Turkey was allegedly being threatened by members of Yed-A's family and uh, today's witness was worried because his mother and, and brother remain in Syria and, and he was worried that his uh, statement in court would be a danger to them. Um, and I just think this shows how difficult this trial is going to be because a lot of people are going to testify, I assume, who have families who are not in Germany and that they have to be worried about. So this is actually going to be a big issue, I think. That was the court update for this week. And the court is still in session while we're recording. Next week, we'll hear from Hannah again. We will dedicate the whole episode to the recent witness testimonies at court. And with this, we come to the end of the episode. We hope you're not fatigued and that you will be tuning in when we're back next week. This podcast is listener supported. You can help keeping it going by subscribing and sharing it with your friends, colleagues and networks and by hitting the donate button on our website. Thank you for your support. Branch 251 is created, produced and hosted by Fritz Streif and Karam Shumali. Production feedback by Maarten van Doormalen. Ghana Elitami is our court reporter. And that was Paulina Peik, who we are happy to announce will be supporting the podcast as a production assistant. That's it for today. See you next time on Branch 251. See you then.